Welcome to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. She's a Canada Research Chair in Global Health Equity and Social Justice with Marginalized Populations and an Associate Professor at the University of Toronto's Factor in Wintosh Faculty of Social Work. Every week, the show features amazing speakers from around the world talking about stigma from research, lived experiences, and activism perspectives. Why should we care about stigma? What can we do about it? Thank you for tuning in. Let's start the show. Listeners, I am so excited to introduce Dr. Ina Park as our guest today. She is an associate professor in the Department of Family and Community Medicine at University of California, San Francisco. She is also the medical director of the California Prevention Training Center and a medical consultant for the Division of STD Prevention at the Center for Disease Control and Prevention in the United States. And super excitingly, she just released a book that I cannot wait to go and buy called Strange Bedfellows, Adventures in Science, History, and Surprising Secrets of sexually transmitted diseases. So I am so excited to have you here today. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. And I usually tell an origin story if I know somebody, how I know you. And I Mm -hmm. literally saw you promoting your book, which I cannot (laughs) wait to get and put it on our book club reading list because we have women scientists books we're reading. And I just said on Twitter, you should come and talk about this book. And you agree. So thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm so happy to be here. I love how social media can bring us together sometimes. It's amazing. So I want to know for the very first kind of question I want to ask you, yeah. what is your elevator pitch? If someone's in elevators, imagine we're all vaccinated and we can <laughs> an elevator without masks or like without like limits of like two people per elevator. What do you say you do? So I tell people that I'm an STI researcher or an STI enthusiast, and I also see patients. And my specialty is primarily diagnostic tests for syphilis, as well as understanding the impact of the HPV or human papillomavirus vaccine. Oh, so, okay. This is perfect. Because my next question is, and I, are you in San Francisco right now? I am. Okay. I love San Francisco. I always dreamed about living there. I love ocean beach. I love the ocean. I love the mountains. I love the trees, everything you have there, the hills. So I'm going to show up in my time machine right now. My time machine can go past the like travel restrictions between the Canada and the US. It can has space of physical distancing. I'm going to show up in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to say, take me back in this time machine to the time and place where you became an STI enthusiast and you started (laughs) about stigma around sexually transmitted infections. Where would you take me? I would take you actually across the bay to Berkeley, to University of California. And yeah, and I started there as a sexual health care educator. 
And at that time, I had no idea what I wanted to do with the rest of my life, but I spent a lot of time counseling students after receiving an STI diagnosis or those who were trying to figure out what kind of contraception that they wanted. And as part of that, I ended up doing some activities for National Condom Week, which involved, which I talk about in the book, involved me dressing up as a giant condom with my entire body covered in a costume, except for my head was, you know, just my face was showing so I could breathe. And then I ended up standing in front of at least 100 people at Sproul Hall, which is the place where all the anti-Vietnam War protests happened in, in Berkeley in the 60s, and doing a condom demonstration with a banana and uh, just realizing I was willing to push boundaries to get people excited and interested about the topic of sexual health. And I actually wrote that as my medical school admissions essay about dressing up as a giant condom and people let me in anyway, <laughs> which is amazing. Um, and I sort of, you know, I got the bug actually, literally um, back then in college. So as a very young person, it never really left me. So I continued, you know, doing research in the area, not during residency because it's too busy, but, you know, in medical school, I did some HIV prevention research. And then um, after residency, I also ended up doing a fellowship studying HPV or human papillomavirus. And I just never left this place. So here I am. <laughs> That's amazing. You made me think for a second. Do you have any of those giant toys that are viruses? I do. I actually have some. I have the little ones with me right now. I have a um, whole bunch of those too that are STDs. <laughs> I do. I I just keep them close by because you know they're like my companions. Cubic lice right here. So Amazing. yes, I have an entire. I have an entire collection. My children have grown up playing with them, and I am praying that they will still be well adjusted and okay despite that. It's so that's so fun. I did some peer education after my master's in Ghana, and it was really a good way to get over any stigma around talking about yeah. sex because yes. they would put me with a microphone, and the whole school would in some of these towns, like small towns. We'd right. just be outside. There'd be hundreds of people, and right. I'd have to stand there. This <laughs> is like, you know, a white person from Canada talking right. about like HIV and condoms, and just right. being really excited. And then you realize how important it is just for us to not have stigma talking about sex, just to be yes. able to talk about body parts, and you know, and and then in the AIDS conferences, the international AIDS conferences. I don't know if you've been there, but I have been to some. Mm -hmm. Have you been to the condomized parties? They'd be no. So there are people who sit there all day long doing condom demonstrations. You would you would probably really wow. get along with them. Yeah, I would. They give away thousands of condoms, and they have these big parties that are called condomized, and there's condoms everywhere. And I'm like, that sounds great. That sounds really fun. Well, I mean, we have to make the topic fun. <laughs> Because, you know, there is a little bit of an ick factor or a fear factor associated with STIs and HIV. And so what do we do when we're afraid? We run away from things. And mm -hmm. what I want to do is turn people towards the topic. And we do that by making it fun or making it funny. And because we know, I mean, you know this as well, Carmen, that it's so much easier to have sex than to talk about it. And so we have to do something to make it easier for people. Otherwise, we're just going to expect the same thing we've always had. Mm -hmm. And I want to ask you my first stigma question because you mm -hmm. just alluded to it, which is why should we care about the stigma around STIs? Because you, you said, you know, it might make us afraid. So why do you think in 2021 that it matters for us to think about stigma? Should we think, be thinking about diagnostics or mm -hmm. other things? What is your 
sort of answer if someone was like, oh, what's the big deal about this? Yeah. I mean, so I don't know the statistics for Canada, but I'll tell you, CD, the you know, US CDC just released some statistics a couple weeks ago saying that one in five Americans has an STI. So at this moment, many of which are the viral STIs like HPV or HSV, herpes simplex virus. So the thing is, is that they're really common. That's number mm-hmm. one. Yeah. And, num- and number two, I can tell you from seeing patients myself is that some people when they receive the diagnosis feel like their entire sex life is ruined forever. Mm-hmm. And so it just, you know, stares me right in the face, literally, that people are still very stigmatized about these infections. And, you know, stigma prevents us from taking care of our health and actually going out and getting tested because some people say, I'd rather just pretend it's not happening. Mm-hmm. And I think if we are able to defeat the stigma or reduce the stigma around these infections, I think it will make people feel more free to go out and seek sexual health services and, you know, make them more comfortable perhaps in asking about status with partners. So I think in general, I'm not saying it's going to stop the STI epidemic, but it could make people better able to cope with the diagnosis and feel less stigmatized and less of that sentiment like, oh my gosh, this is going to, you know, this is going to change my life or I'm somehow tainted or unclean or what all the words that we use, you know, in, in this field that are stigmatizing around these infections. That's so important. I'm wondering, you talked a little bit about an experience of if somebody got a, an STI or diagnosis, can you tell us more and, you know, maybe some, some things you wrote about in your book, what is that? How does stigma how did it show up in someone's life? You, yeah. you know, it sounds like it, it's internalized or, or someone's starting to see themselves differently, but maybe, yes. you know, if you have any, any examples or anecdotes that you wanted to share about what does this really look like to walk around the world and feel like, you know, you're stigmatized because you have an STI diagnosis? Yeah. And I'll, I'll give you two and a half examples. Right. Um, so <laughs> I, I think it depends The amount of stigma and or shame that people might feel around a diagnosis, I think, depends on whether or not you're dealing with something chronic like HIV or HSV versus whether you're dealing with something that you can take care of, you know, with a single dose of antibiotics, which Mm. is something like, you know, a chlamydia or gonorrhea. I will say that people can feel stigmatized by both types of diagnoses, but when you're able to sort of take care of it quickly, then and, and you only have to disclose to a small number of people because you're only really informing recent partners, I feel like it's less impactful long-term than, you know, if you're having to be told that you have a a chronic viral STI, such as an HIV or such as herpes simplex virus, and then it becomes a matter of having to disclose that status to partners beyond the small window in which you got diagnosed. Mm -hmm. So. I tell a story about a patient of mine who got the diagnosis. She was just, just could not see past the fact that she was going to have to tell people forever and how this might change her sex life. And a a, a different story in there of a herpes researcher who disclosed to a patient and she just stopped having sex, you know, for years Mm -hmm. because she just could not cope. So I think for some people, even though herpes physically is more of a nuisance than anything sort of seriously you know, health threatening or life threatening people because of the idea of having to disclose and perhaps being rejected by partners. You know, the the stigma around herpes is still very real and very present, even more so than HIV. 
I, I agree with you. I did um, an STI prevention intervention workshop several years ago now with lesbian, bisexual, and queer women. Yeah. And at you know, the beginning of the workshop was in Toronto and one in Calgary. Literally at the beginning of the workshop, I said just what you said. There's probably people sitting in this room who have STIs, you know, in another a podcast with uh, Dr. Maria Pantelich, she also had said something about not necessarily STIs, but about always speak as if somebody is in the room with whatever stigmatized um, issue or identity or health condition yes. you're talking about. So I basically started off the intervention both in Toronto first saying, you know, there's likely people here who have various STIs. Let's, you know, be really thoughtful and, and compassionate in our language. And then the second day, somebody disclosed that somebody said something about herpes. It was so interesting that it was that infection and not any of the other infections, like including HIV, mm -hmm. that sort of drew this collective gasp from people. And then the one mm -hmm. person who you know, was open about having had a herpes diagnosis got really upset mm -hmm. and, and left and we had a debrief. And so literally the next week, I went to Calgary to do the same workshop. And I started off by telling this very example of what happened and what I don't want to be replicated. The next day, one of the nurses who was participating said something also negative about herpes. And I was like, wow, what's up with herpes? Why are people <laughs> so down on it? Why are people right. so willing to be openly stigmatizing, you know, more so than than other illnesses. I never figured that out. I, don't I mean, know if you I have any ideas, you know, the history of STIs, maybe you know something. I don't know. I mean, I think part of it is that um, herpes is the butt of many jokes. And, you know, with some of the U.S. produced television, like, you know, Saturday Night Live, a lot of movies um, in the U.S. like make a joke out of herpes. And so I think people think that it's something that, you know, funny to joke about at someone else's expense. And you realize and you realize for sure, Carmen, is that these jokes land a different, you know, differently on different people. And if you're someone who's struggling with the diagnosis, it obviously can be very hurtful and just make the stigma that you feel even worse. So, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book as well is that, yeah, I don't know if you're familiar with The Bachelor, which is a, you know, ABC series here. I've heard of it, but I, I only have Netflix. So I don't really, yeah. <laughs> I've never watched it. <laughs> Well, they gather, you know, they, they gather a single man and then they gather like, you know, 20 something single women and they try to see if they can fall in love and actually end up getting married by the end of the reality TV show. But it's a very popular show in the US. And one of the most common reasons that they turn away bachelorettes, uh, prospective bachelorettes, is because they test them all for HSV. And if they're positive, they actually turn them away. So, you know, things like this can absolutely augment the stigma. And one of the things I talk about is that the test is actually very, very poor in terms of its performance. And mm. the low the low positive results are false positives about half the time, believe wow. it or not. I know. So, so not only are we giving someone a stigmatizing diagnosis, but for the low positive results, half the time they're wrong. Oh my gosh. And it can really <laughs> impact people. So I want to just like ask you, why did you write this book? What are you hoping mm -hmm. to achieve with it? What do you hope that people get from it? So part of what I wanted to do was, you know, I could have written a book like a how-to manual or whatever, a prescriptive type of book, but I really wanted to actually use storytelling and humor 
to highlight the science and tell the sort of hidden backstories about how STIs have been various parts of our lives, you know, everything from World War II, you know, to this, you know, to television to pop culture today and just see how it's woven through the fabric of our lives in a way that we don't even understand, but it's happening in the background. What sparked this idea? Like, how did you come up with this? Were you just, you know, drinking coffee one morning and were like, I have this idea. I don't know. How did how did it come? No, it was much more dramatic than that, Carmen, oh, actually. Good. Yes. Um, it was the drama. So, it was the drama. Well, yeah, so it's actually in my in my introduction, which is called Beginning with a Bang. And it's because um, it centers around my son who was hit by a car, who's fine, by the way, but he was hit by a car at age seven. And when I was in the hospital with him, we were in the intensive care unit awaiting surgery. And the neurosurgeon came by because he had a small skull fracture to make sure he was neurologically okay and didn't need to have any type of neurosurgery. That's and scary. it was really, yeah, it was absolutely terrible. So any parents listening are, are, you know, gasping and saying, oh my God, <laughs> yes, it, is a- it is every parent's nightmare. So, so the neurosurgeon came by with his team and he started checking his neurologic status. He said, what's your name? What grade are you in? And then my son just paused and he said, wait a second. And he goes, have you ever had herpes? Because if you have, my mother knows everything about it. So you should ask her. Oh and my they, gosh. The neurosurgeon just started laughing and the whole team started laughing. And he said to me, I think he's okay neurologically. <laughs> it seems like he's fine. Um, so <laughs> were you, were you like, I'm a doctor? <laughs> yeah. Well, they, they, he explained that. But so during that hospital stay, my son asked the ICU nurse about whether they had syphilis and asked the chaplain who was the priest, you know, the priest making the rounds, whether or not he had chlamydia. I mean, it was just, so I was just cringing the entire time. But so that was the hospitalization where I realized I was just watching him. And I said, this child is seven, almost eight years old. And he feels so much more comfortable talking about people's sex lives and STIs in a way that many adults and many physicians who I work with are not. Totally. And I said, I had been in the field for almost 10 years and I just saw STI rates were increasing and nothing I would do personally is probably going to change that. So I just started asking myself, what can I personally do to maybe move the needle a little bit around the stigma surrounding these infections? And what could I do to maybe increase conversation about it and get people interested in the topic and wondering about the topic instead of just wanting to push it away and not think about it. So that's why I decided to write a book. That's amazing. So what did you, it sounds like you did like historical research and pop culture research. How long did that take? Oh, I mean, well, the actual writing of the book probably took about three years, but that's because I had to write grants and write papers and take care. <laughs> yeah. I had to take care of children and, and do that kind of thing. You know, as you know, Carmen, like if I had taken a sabbatical, I think I could have knocked it out much more quickly, but so it wasn't like a elegant or beautiful process, but it got done. That's amazing. I'm I'm <clears throat> so excited. If you were to pick one thing you you noticed in your research that was the most surprising when you were writing this book, was there something you're like, I can't believe I didn't know this. And now I'm going to share this with everybody. Was there something that you learned that you didn't know before you wrote the book? Yeah, you know, I think intellectually, I knew this because of studying sexual network theory, but just understanding 
how much the people that were sleeping, you know, when we're having sex, we're not just having sex with the person in front of us, but every other person they've had sex with in a, you know, within like for a bacterial <laughs> STI within a two month period. And just understanding how much someone's sexual network, which you can't see, by the way, affects your risk of getting an STI. So I just used an example of a study in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and they found that about half the cases of gonorrhea in their city, the people all went to the same six bars and nightclubs in the city. So half of the gonorrhea case, which you know, no one's going to put you know, on a rating on Yelp or anything like that <laughs> to, brag, <laughs> to, bra- to brag about that. But, and they said that if you had met a partner in one of these places during this specific period of time where they were having a gonorrhea outbreak, your risk of contracting gonorrhea from that sexual act would be 300 times higher than if you met a partner in a different part of the city. Oh my so, gosh. Yeah. So that was just shocking to me. And then it just made me realize that now that I'm, you know, in my 40s and the risk in any sexual network that I would probably get into is probably really low. It just made me feel like, gosh, like I already have a partner who I'm committed to, but I should have had more sex when I had the chance. You know what I mean? But I mean, and now if I, if I wanted to get out there, I just think I would feel less afraid of catching an STI. Um, I, I think I would know how to protect myself, but you know, when I was just starting out becoming sexually active, I just was so fearful of, oh my God, I'm going to catch H- you know, HIV mm-hmm. or an STI. And the truth is, is that, you know, in some sexual networks, it, there's, there's so little infection around. It's actually really hard to catch anything, even if you have 20 partners. So I never did that. I missed out on my chance, <laughs> Carmen. But as you said, we don't know because the networks are- invisible. No, you don't know. You don't know. But I'm, um, I'm always a person like- at parties when people are talking about like hooking up I'm like yes oh so are you using um condoms or some other kind of protection they just like look at me like they can't believe I asked that oh, yeah. what, what do you want from me I do HIV and STS have fun but protect yourself you know? exactly <laughs> exactly like, oh my gosh and then people will start asking me all these questions like they they don't necessarily hear or have these discussions about STIs and HIV they don't want to think about it right you know, like, as you said it, but it's so impossible to know are you going to the the bar with the chlamydia or are you going to the right. other bar <laughs> right are you right are you going to the place with all the gonorrhea you don't know that you know until you notice every time i meet a partner at this bar i end up getting an sti so yeah right. but you can't figure that out until after the fact oh that's amazing i have one last stigma question i want to ask you sure how can people listening who might be walking their dog or sitting on the bus or washing the dishes, you know, doing all the things we do when we listen to podcasts, how can they be part of a solution? What do you want people to do to start breaking down stigma around STIs? Well, I think I'm going to start with folks that are parents first. And that if you are a parent, I think talking to your kids about STIs and normalizing them and saying that STIs are just an, a very common consequence of being a sexually active person. So if you get an STI, it just means that you're human and that you're sexually active. Oh, I so love that. I, if so you get I think an STI, saying, it means you're human. I right? like that the title of this podcast. That's there you go. That's such a good sentence. I'm like, yes, it's true. You're human. There you go. It's true. It just, it's, it's, you know, it's the same thing as walking out in the world and getting a cold, right? Um, or, or COVID-19. It's that, we live, we catch viruses and bacteria, and it's the same thing. It just happens to be in your genitals or your anus, you know what I mean? So, and then for those who aren't parents, I think if anyone ever discloses to you 
you know, uh, an appropriate response is to say, oh, I'm, you know, I'm really sorry that happened to you. Not like you or, or, you know, using any, any sort of labeling language or stigmatizing language, but just to say, I'm sorry that happened to you. And if you say, well, that's happened to me as well. You know, I think disclosing and sharing status and normalizing STIs is the best that we can do to try to lower the stigma. I'm not going to say eliminate. We probably will never eliminate the stigma completely, but I think that it creates a little bit more of a community or sort of community of support rather than, you know, shame in this situation. I love that you just gave the listeners something really tangible to do and say, because I think often we need to be aware of our reactions because it can right. mean so much to somebody. So if somebody discloses, you're saying, say, oh, I'm, I'm sorry that that happened to you rather right. than like, oh my God, what are you going to do now? Who right, are you going right. to tell this person? You know, like they probably don't need our alarm because they That's probably right. already felt their own alarm about this. <laughs> you probably just need some compassion. Right. So, right. And, and don't make your face, you know, the, the face that you make when you like smell something bad or, or like, Ooh, you know, like, or see something that is, uh, that you don't want to see. Don't make that face. Totally. Watch practice, your face. Watch your face. Practice, practice your face. <laughs> Social worker, no matter what yeah. someone tells you, unless it's, you know, somebody has died or something, you're allowed to be sad, right. but just yes. the shocked face is not helpful. Listeners. No, not no at all. Face. No shocked face. <laughs> this is amazing. Okay. I warned you about this. The next section is the wild card section. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Hold on. I've got to prepare myself mentally. Go ahead. All right. So they're going to, the listeners are going to get to know the real you. <laughs> First wildcard question, what book are you reading right now? You know what I just finished reading again was Peggy Orenstein's Boys and Sex. She's a good friend of mine and it just, in, uh, it chronicles the sort of sex lives of young men today and what they're navigating in terms of dating apps and porn. And it also features trans men, which, you know, is wonderful to see. And so it's just opening my eyes to what is the sexual landscape for boys right now and young men. And it's really different. Let me just say it's really different than when I was a kid. So um, I, it's giving me, you know, information that I'm going to be using on my own boys. So that's why ah, I've heard her speak on the armchair expert podcast. Yeah. And so maybe I'll check, check that book out. That's so great. It's really good. Yeah. Ah, I keep reading uh, the books <laughs> by podcast guests. Yours is going to be next. I'm reading um, <laughs> Emily Mendenhall's book, uh, Rethinking Diabetes. It was mm-hmm. super interesting about trauma, HIV, yeah. and diabetes. Super great book. So, you know, I'll be promoting your book and future podcast too. <laughs> awesome. Uh, the second wild card is imagine a future mm-hmm. of no travel restrictions because everybody's got vaccinations and all that. And you could go for dinner anywhere in the world with anyone oh, wow. you want. Wow. Who do you take and where do you go? Oh my goodness. I want to have, so I know who I, I definitely, I want to have dinner with Michelle Obama, nice. um, but where we're going to eat. I think I'd be interested in going, I think it's shut down, but I wanted to go to one of these. I don't know if you've been to these restaurants where they use molecular gastronomy and they have like all these like foams and gels and like they use liquid nitrogen in the food. And I've, only like been to an, 
I have been to an ice cream shop like that in Vancouver. Yes. There's like a lineup to get in and they have like test tubes and like beakers yes. and they're making like nitrogen like ice cream. I've been there twice. It was so cool. But I haven't yeah. been to a, a restaurant like that. That's yeah, like- there was one in Spain. There was one in Spain that was like a three-star Michelin restaurant that used all these really interesting techniques um, around their food. And so I think, but I heard that it closed. But one place that does that is uh, Alinea in Chicago. So we could go there for dinner, I guess. Oh, instead. Nice. Michelle, Michelle and I could have a nice little sit down. It's about 25 courses. They're all very small and they're all really creative. Oh, can you please do a selfie when you do that eventually? We'll do. Michelle Obama, you are invited on a future podcast anytime, anytime. <laughs> and also the author you mentioned, Peggy Orenstein, you're also yeah. invited on a future podcast anytime. A lot of people have mentioned Barack wanting to go for dinner with Barack. So yeah, I am happy that you mentioned Michelle because I think that she would be fantastic dinner guest. So yeah, she would. And whoever, when, when Barack goes out to dinner with your other podcast guest, then I can go out to dinner with Michelle because they'll be apart for the evening. So it's perfect. perfect. I think this, <laughs> this, is, this is great. Um, okay. So the very last podcast question before I let you off into your yeah. beautiful day. Has there ever been any words of wisdom or advice that have been helpful in your journey that you want to share with the listeners? Hmm. I think one of the most helpful things have been when my mentors, and I do this to my own mentees as well, being in academia, they've been really good about telling me not to bite off more than I can chew. Because I think as a woman in academia or just a person in academia in general, we have a tendency to say yes to lots of things and get chopped up in lots of little pieces with our time scattered in lots of places. And it can make one feel very unfocused and a little out of control um, of one's life. So I, I tell people to be really thoughtful about their choices and what they say yes to. And also that you can back out of things if you've made a mistake, you know, and I think that some people feel like, oh, but now I'm committed and I have to do it. You know, the truth is, is that the world will go on, you know, that project that you committed to that is not working out, you can transition out of it. The world will go on and they will find a replacement. And so I think people feel that sort of sense of obligation, but you also have to preserve your sanity. I love that. Have you been talking to my partner? Is that why you're saying all this stuff? (laughs) She's always like, you don't have to say yes to everything. And I'm like, because it's true. I feel like our time is so precious and and it's and focus is so important, right? Mm -hmm. So I really am glad you said that because the image you created of chopping yourself off into tiny pieces, I could totally relate to that. And you said yes to so many things that you're, where are you? You're you're kind of scattered. So that's really, really great advice. (laughs) So my partner is going to be like, "Mm -hmm, are you going to listen? Yeah, told you. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I love that advice. Oh, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you today. Oh, thanks. Thanks for finding me on Twitter, Carmen. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Everybody Hates Me. Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. Join us next week for more inspiring and motivating conversations with stigma leaders from around the world.
if you wanna listen.